leading people to value themselves more was just is really the enormous amazing thing about harm reduction and, and one of the things that i always actually see is one of the most spiritual things you can imagine because you are basically being kind and that kindness is transforming someone's life you're listening to narcotica a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them Welcome back to another episode of Narcotica. I'm Zach Siegel, your friendly drug journalist and co-host. I hope everyone out there has been enjoying summer, getting outside, being with friends, and of course, staying safe. I can't speak for everywhere, but I can tell you that Chicago is back on the map. People are very much out and about. I feel like we've all made it out of a long and dark tunnel but to immediately burst that rosy bubble. There's some very grim news that I think listeners of the show ought to know before we get today's episode rolling. The CDC recently released more 2020 overdose mortality data. And man, we are truly living through a disaster. Drug overdose deaths rose nearly 30% in 2020 to a record high of 93,000 deaths. Deaths rose in every state but two, South Dakota and New Hampshire. And I'm not sure what's going on in those states, but uh, everywhere, everywhere across the country saw surges in overdose deaths, especially in places like the South and the West Coast both saw a surge in overdoses during 2020. Places like California, Kentucky, and Florida have been hit especially hard. And for those of you who follow the show, you'll probably think that I sound like a broken record at this point, but I'll keep saying this as many times as I need to for it to sink in. This is no longer a, quote, opioid crisis. What I mean is, 2020 overdose deaths linked to stimulants like cocaine, but especially methamphetamine, also broke records. The other key development here, of course, is the further entrenchment of illicit fentanyl in the drug supply. It's a contamination at mass scale. And at this point, we're living through a poisoning crisis. There's also a lot of alarming rumors about the presence of fentanyl in the cocaine supply, especially in cities like New York. But because the drug supply is so unregulated, it's hard to tell what's really going on there. So at this point, if you're consuming any white powder bought on the street, if you can, definitely try to get it checked, try to get it tested if possible. And of course, please, please carry naloxone. In the show notes, we'll link to places where you can access both fentanyl testing strips and get naloxone. If you're listening to this show and you are indeed using, it's also critical that you don't use alone, which I know is easier said than done. Because sadly, a lot of people feel the need to hide their drug use and keep it a secret. That's because of stigma and criminalization, because our society so harshly judges people who use certain drugs. So if you have no choice but to use alone, there is a hotline you can call called Never Use Alone, one 800 484 3731. I've talked to some of the people who run the hotline and they're truly amazing and they're doing God's work if you believe in that sort of thing. I wrote about the Never Use Alone hotline in the New Republic a while back, but the way it works is this. So you call the hotline, you give them your location, then you go about your business and they sit on the line with you and chat and if suddenly you go silent after using, 
and you're no longer responding, the hotline will dispatch emergency services or an ambulance to your location. The Never Use Alone hotline is totally free and ran by volunteers, many of whom are drug users themselves and have actually made use of the service, and they just simply want to help others. That's really the beauty of the harm reduction community. People doing the thankless work of helping people who use drugs stay alive, survive, and live their lives because they know it's the right thing to do. So, one more time, 1-800-484-3731. And I think that brings us to the topic of today's very exciting episode with a very special guest who probably needs no introduction, but I'm doing one anyway because it's our podcast and I'm doing the intro. Journalist, author, and today's best living chronicler of the harm reduction movement, Maya Solovitz. She has a brand new book out this month, July 27th, called Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. If you dig our show, then you'll love Maya's new book, A Riveting History of the Harm Reduction Movement, which kicks off in earnest in the late 1980s as the HIV pandemic was ripping across the planet. And primarily, for a while there, HIV was affecting injection drug users who didn't know that sharing syringes and ejection equipment could spread the virus. So Maya traces the origin of the harm reduction movement to places like the Netherlands and cities in England like Liverpool. These were the early adopters, the Dutch and the British. Back in the 80s, believe it or not, drug users in Liverpool could go to clinics where they could access a safe, regulated dose of heroin, among other treatments like methadone and, and counseling and, and, and social support, which, which are also key, you know, to, to making people feel valued and loved and, and make it feel like, you know, life is worth living. Like, this isn't only about drugs, folks. Like, drugs are, are a big part of this, but it's about being human and strengthening bonds and connections and, and moving through the world with, with dignity. So Maya writes, and I quote, while the Dutch invented several harm reduction practices, it was the British who began the movement that brought the idea to the rest of the world. So through quirky characters and passionate activists and truly relentless research, Maya's book tells the story of how the harm reduction movement spread so rapidly and so successfully across the globe. But as we know, especially in America, there has always been vocal resistance to harm reduction practices. And in America especially, where the quote-unquote recovery from addiction, that definition, has long been narrowly defined as complete abstinence from all drugs, but for nicotine, caffeine, and sugar, of course. And just on a personal note here, harm reduction for me has been a lifesaver. I had a very problematic relationship with opioids for much of my teenage years and through, you know, much of my early 20s. And today, I'm not abstinent. I don't go to 12-step meetings. I don't have a sponsor. And I don't pray. And I don't identify as being in long-term recovery, even though technically I am. But I did find a true home in harm reduction. And today, because of the practices and philosophy of harm reduction, 
I have a half I have a healthy and happy relationship with substances. So before we roll the interview, I just want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who financially support us on Patreon. We are entirely listener funded with no ads and no paywalls. So if you dig the show and haven't signed up to support us on Patreon, please do so. Even if it's a couple bucks, that goes a long way to funding the show and keeping us going. If you support us on Patreon, you'll get access to bonus content, which we're working on making more of, I promise. And you'll have access to us, the hosts, who you can DM and message and reach out to at any time. If you had feedback on the show or any ideas for episodes or any people you want us to interview, just hit us up. We're very open, very easy to access, and we're, and we're just super interested in you, the listener, and, and what you want, and we want to give you more of it. We've also got some fun merch like stickers, and I think we're working on making some other cool stuff like t-shirts, so be on the lookout for that. And yeah, if all that sounds good to you, log on to patreon.com slash narcotica and smash that support button. Okay, enough of my jibber-jabber. Time to run Maya's interview. And for this very special interview, we've got the original full Narcotica crew on deck. My lovely co-hosts, Troy Farah and Chris Marath. All right, let's go. So maybe it's time to formally introduce our esteemed guest on today's program, uh, returning champion to Narcotica. If you if you listen to us regularly, you already know her, Maya Salovitz. Maya, thanks so much for being here with us today. Ah, thanks so much for having me. So what brings Maya on the show? Is there some news? Is there something going on? Yeah, she's got a brand new book, The First Ever History of the Harm Reduction Movement. It's called Undoing Drugs, the Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. So, wow. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think like we were just saying moments ago, like it's just remarkable how this project has never been taken on before. That there, you know, obviously you can talk about it in your own words and there's, I'm sure there's a ton of caveats about how this is not the complete history or the only history. This is a version of history of this movement. But the fact that here we are in 2021 and it's just never been been done before. And so I think maybe just to kind of get into the topic, can you talk about like why knowing this history now is, is so important and, and what made you want to venture on to do this probably mind-numbingly difficult project. Sure. So um, harm reduction has had amazing success of the movement over time. If you look at where we were in the 80s when it was first introduced, when we were facing HIV pandemic and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who injected drugs were dying from AIDS and a brave group of people went out there created an idea that um, is useful far beyond drugs and said, these are lives worth saving. And for the first time ever, there were people who were actually trying to help people who inject drugs, not just trying to change them. The idea was really, this is killing us. What can we do? Um, Let's try something. And you know, there were just these amazing stories of, you know, people who went out and deliberately got arrested in order to protect some of the most stigmatized people in the world. Um, There was, you know, this whole sort of rise of activism that I saw that also really ultimately so undermines the ideology of the drug war. And you look at it back then, and, you know, it was like a few hundred people And now you can Google harm reduction jobs and there are thousands of them. There are government agencies that hire harm reduction folks. Um, You know, back then the government was actively trying to stamp out the term um, and get it out of documents. 
and not let people use it when they were applying for grants. And, you know, the whole thing about the drug war was let's stigmatize these horrible, bad, evil people. And now it's like, oh, we got to fight stigma. So how did that happen? How do we go from this at least rhetorical sea change? How did this occur? So that's what I wanted to explore a bit in the book. And I also, you know, before uh, before more people die, uh, wanted to get their stories down because it is, um, you know, it, it, addiction can be very deadly and harm reduction reduces harm, but it does not eliminate harm. So I wanted to, you know, get people's stories while they were still here. I believe I know why nobody else did this previously, because it is a prickly group of people who, in which I include myself in that, um, who are quite strongly, have quite strong views, um, may not necessarily agree with you and may tell you terrible things. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's very hard for anybody who's like at all um, supportive of a movement to tell the story of that without it being very conflictual because who goes in and who's not in and how do you, you know, make it representative um, at the same time, how do you portray people? You know, it's just like writing about your friends is always a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, can we, can I ask you a little bit about what the title means, Undoing Drugs? And I, I mean, I read the book, so I understand the concept, but uh, it's, I, I like the wordplay, but uh, maybe unpack that a little bit. So um, I called it undoing drugs because the concept of drugs is deeply problematic. It, first of all, it leaves out alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, which are the most commonly used drugs, not to mention sugar. Um, and it, it just creates this idea that there are these things that are drugs that are bad. And then there's these consciousness altering substances that we don't call drugs that are fine. And the reason something goes into one category or the other turns out to be racism. So in order to get rid of the racism and actually have a policy towards psychoactive substances that makes sense, we have to undo the concept of drugs. And harm reduction is all about that because the idea of harm reduction is focus on harm first. Don't focus on getting high, focus on who's getting hurt. And if no one's getting hurt, leave it alone yeah yeah um i think that um unfortunately there's some there's varying degrees in which harm reduction organizations do that um one of the biggest uh, contradictions i've seen is people getting like losing their jobs for actively using at a harm reduction job you know what i mean um you know and, and it's happened it's happened to people i, I know so um, people, you know, in, in, in treatment or, you know, uh, organizations or, or whatever, you know, that are, that are holistic and, and grassroots losing their jobs for that same reason. That's crazy. And I, um, one of the things I was really trying to get into in the book, but I couldn't really get into in great depth is how do you deal with organizationally somebody who is actively using, may have a bit of chaos in their life, but is really important and can do amazingly good work. And I, I talk about that a little bit in the story of Housing Works, where one of the co-founders was actively using for most of the time. And his partner, who was also his um, lover, um, you know, this was a hard thing to negotiate. And, and at first, even though he was really into harm reduction conceptually, he was not so keen on his partner being an active user. And he had to go through a lot of changes in order to realize that, wait a minute, what he brings to the organization is so valuable that we need to accommodate it the way we'd accommodate another disability. The problem with this can be is that if you have somebody handling money and they're addicted to an illegal drug and you have government grants uh, and you have issues where you know, it could bring the whole organization down, what do you do? How do you have a strong enough organization to sustain that and, and keep actively using people employed without destroying the organization. And so a lot of that I discovered really has to do with it can really make it work. But if you don't, you're going to have a disaster, as I, I talked about a little bit with uh, Stand Up Harlem. For those who haven't read it, um, when do you date the beginning of harm reduction as a movement, uh, as a cohesive movement too? And, and was there a, 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 um, an event that sort of 
set that off or, or um, you know, what would you say is the beginning of the American harm reduction movement? Yeah. Um, so I start, um, I chose to start it with the 1987 article written by Russell Newcomb of Liverpool uh, called High Time for Harm Reduction. And in that time period in Liverpool, what was going on was they were doing some of the earliest needle exchanges. They were also having prescription heroin and even some prescription cocaine and focusing really hard on preventing the spread of HIV and reducing the harm done to people who inject drugs. And so while Amsterdam and Rotterdam had had needle exchange before that, and they even had the concept of harm reduction before that, it wasn't till Liverpool that they put it all together with heroin prescribing and with a name that packaged and branded it and allowed it to spread to the rest of the world where they, I mean, the Liverpoolians were deliberately doing this. They created a journal, they had conferences, they wanted to get this idea out there and they did so more than the Dutch did who were more sort of focused internally. Um, it wasn't that the Dutch uh, were keeping it to themselves, but it was more that they didn't form a movement the way the uh, Liverpoolians did and they didn't uh, happen upon Edith Springer the way the Liverpoolians did and she became this enormous messenger of it to the United States. Yeah, I did want to talk to you about uh, Edith Springer, the goddess of harm reduction. And, and you met several other, you know, high profile characters or, you know, you bring them to this book uh, that helped bring the idea of harm reduction into the mainstream. Let's uh, let, let's let's start with Edith. Uh, how did she get the name, the nickname goddess of harm reduction? So according to her, um, a co-worker gave her the name um, and it just kind of stuck. I mean, the thing about it is when you start researching the history of harm reduction, virtually everybody who's anybody in the field says, I was inspired directly by Edith or by somebody who was inspired by Edith. So she trained thousands of people and she mentored many, many people. And so a lot of the major figures in harm reduction, like Dan Big, who gave us naloxone and um, uh, many other folks, actually learned from her. Pat Denning, um, who gave us harm reduction therapy, um, lots of other folks um, whose names are not coming to my head immediately, but who were incredibly powerful and influential in this, she helped them realize that harm reduction was the way to go. And she was directly converted by some of the folks from Liverpool. And she also um, was an active heroin user for most of her um, career. And so I think that's an important part of it. Um, you know, she was obviously because of the stigma, a little nervous about, you know, talking about that. But the, the thing that she said, the reason that she did it was because people whose recovery path is through harm reduction need role models, just like people whose recovery path is abstinence. And she wanted to show that you could do an enormous amount of good and, have a huge influence and still be a person who uses drugs. Yeah, I definitely want to hone in on that abstinence versus harm reduction dichotomy. Like it's so central to the formation of harm reduction, I think here, especially because it's it's like even like my own experience, like my first entry point into the world of treatment and detox and hospitals the 12 steps were on the wall and everyone knew the Lord's prayer. And I'm like this like 20 year old Jewish kid. I'm like, I don't know the words to this. What is happening? Like, I felt like everyone had this script that I just didn't have. And everyone I later learned had been to this hospital like 20 times and yada, yada, yada. And, and which goes to show again, like how effective is this really? But um, like, yeah, from its inception, that it's abstinence-based 12-step kind of culture is the first thing a lot of people touch. And then they later move to harm reduction and like kind of learn about harm reduction. And and I think like, you know, I think the chapters with, with Pat Denning and Alan Marlott, like that's really where you kind of uh, trace their uphill battle trying to do harm reduction 
in the American treatment system. And it seems like that to me is really like history that's actively unfolding as we speak. Can you sort of talk about like how the treatment system in America kind of formed off the Minnesota model in the 50s and then like, you know, kind of where we're at now and and how this kind of history really is unfolding like as we speak? Sure. So, um, you know, historically, um, in terms of opioids, America has had three forms of treatment. The therapeutic community, which was directly based on a cult called Sinanon, and the whole idea was to break you down and attack you and humiliate you and rebuild you into a new, wonderful, socially acceptable person. Now, the founder of Sinanon was an AA member. So even that goes back to 12 steps. And 12-step is the second major modality. The therapeutic community places tend to last 16, uh, six months to 18 months, um, roughly. The Minnesota model, which is let's indoctrinate people directly into 12-step, um, starts in Minnesota in the 50s or I think late 40s, and then um, creates this whole model, any 28-day rehab, 90% of the content is going to be 12 step and focused on teaching people the disease concept as it is understood in the 12 step movement. And so harm reduction sort of came into this area. Oh, and I should mention the third form, commonly um, used form of treatment is methadone maintenance. And now we have buprenorphine, but back then it was just methadone. And so although methadone was separate, um, there was still the idea that maybe you didn't want to stay on it forever, so you would go into 12-step. And maybe you wanted to like stop using cocaine, so 12-step would be would be attempted to be applied on top of that, which didn't work very well because 12-step programs, at least Narcotics Anonymous, which is the one where people who have opioid addiction tend to wind up, they view taking methadone or buprenorphine as not being clean. And so having people, uh, this happened to me personally with on meth- when I was on methadone, they were like, oh, you should go to NA. I'm like, they're going to tell me like, I can't talk. And what's the point of me sitting there listening to people stigmatize me? Like, why is this going to help me? Right. And so, so, right. So those are the three forms of treatment we've had historically. And so all of them have been heavily influenced by the 12-step model. And to be fair to the American treatment system, American medicine has given up on dealing with addiction. And so all of these amateurs, people with addiction themselves came in and said, okay, we're going to do this. And they didn't really have a scientific tradition. They just said, this worked for me. So therefore this is going to work. And so they created these things. And since there wasn't anything else, they became very popular. And then when medicine sort of saw that they could make money from this, uh, suddenly you had the Minnesota model, which Although the 12-step program explicitly says that you are not supposed to make money from 12-stepping people and converting people into the 12 steps, that's exactly what these programs do. And so you have this system that is really run by amateurs, many of whom have absolutely, absolutely the best intentions. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's all terrible or whatever. It's just that it's not healthcare. And we have had these two extremely harmful modalities. The therapeutic community modality actually gives a lot of people PTSD. Um, the 12-step Minnesota model has the problem of saying that the 12 steps are the only way to recover and the only uh, alternative is jails, institutions, and death. So basically, they tell you, if this doesn't work for you, it's your fault, and goodbye. So that is really not fair to the majority of people for whom it does not work. Now, it's astounding that after all this time, we still have doctors, you know, uh, purporting to be evidence-based and science-based, um, prescribing faith as a as a mandatory treatment for 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 any any disease. And the courts, the the courts will like you know monitor how many meetings you went to in a week, and if you don't attend three meetings, it's like oh, you're uh, you'll get you know, dinged for that. And, that. and to me, like, you know, I mean, every court that's ever decided the issue 
of whether it's constitutional to force people into 12-step has decided that it is not constitutional, which is why we've never had a Supreme Court case on this, because it goes to the appeals level and fails. <laughs> so, but the fact is that it, people's First Amendment rights are violated every single day by forced 12-step. And I'm here going to give my caveat about 12-step, which is if it works for you, fabulous. It's wonderful self-help. You know, people can benefit from group support and from feeling better about themselves by working a moral process. I think that every human being could benefit from that. My problem is when you single out people with addiction for a moral cure and every other condition doesn't have one, you are not saying addiction is a disease. You are saying that um, it is a moral issue or a spiritual issue. And so while I absolutely think people should be referred um, to see if it works for them and because it's a free 24-7 um, avenue of getting support, I don't think we should pay for another minute of it. So how did how did people like Denning and Marlott try to persuade their peers to kind of change the paradigm? Like they had to, of course, meet people where they're at and where they're at was probably a pretty hostile place. Yes. So um, Alan Marlott, um, oh, I really miss him, but he um, he just kept going. But Alan Marlott realized that the 12-step thing didn't work for a lot of people. And his own research showed that the idea of the first drink getting you drunk is actually a matter of expectations. It's not the alcohol that does that, which blew a lot of people's mind. His own research also showed, um, and research of some of his colleagues, that um, controlled drinking actually does work for some people, and that the people who attacked controlled drinking had done so in a very dishonest way that did not really uh, was not very sciencey. Uh, so anyway, like he just kept working. And the first thing he really brought out was this idea of relapse prevention. And so it focused on, you know, what do you do if you slip and how do you, um, how do you recover from that? But that basically is harm reduction because you're still actively using at that point. Um, and so he was able to get this idea into this very abstinence-based system, in part via somebody who did a horrible job translating it. But um, Marlette's own work in the area was really important in teaching people that like, yes, these are skills you can learn. It's not about you're like failing to follow orders. It's about if you order me to play the piano and I can't play the piano, that's not gonna make me any better. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, and he just, you know, kept at it and kept doing research and kept, um, you know, mentoring people in the field, which we, which he did enormously and just kept um, sort of being a lovely person who was able to convince people based on the science, um, especially because psychology, um, which is where a lot of addiction work is done, um, the professional area of psychology was not as infiltrated with the whole 12 steps is the only way thing because they were coming from a research tradition. And so he was able to get, you know, independent psychologists and psychologists even working in rehabs and others to, um, to get that this was a good behavioral way of, um, of working with people. And uh, Pat Denning did similar stuff. She created, um, she along with Jeannie Little and on the East Coast, uh, Andrew Tatarski, uh, the idea of harm reduction therapy. And so this is meeting people where they are and working with them, usually on an outpatient basis. Um, and so you would go into this and if you wanted to say, you know, smoke pot once a week instead of every day, or you wanted to like switch from cocaine to weed or whatever your goal happened to be, they would help you work towards it and help you see if, um, you know, if the drugs are getting in the way and, and how to make that happen less so. The other um, major technique that sort of came out of this whole area is called motivational interviewing. And again, the idea there is sheer harm reduction. It's like, we meet you where you are, we help you work towards your own goals. And 
if drugs are getting in the way, we help you um, deal with that. But if your primary goal is I need to get a girlfriend, that's what they're going to work with you on. Um, one thing I really liked about the book uh, was the any positive change chapter um, uh, and how this, you know, a, a lot of stuff we cover in harm reduction and drug policy is semantics, you know, arguing over definitions and stuff like that. And sometimes it seems really trivial, but I think it's actually really important. You know, words have power. What meaning we assign to them is really important. Can we talk about the use of this word recovery, how it, the history of it and how it kind of shifted? You know, I know that term makes some people cringe a little bit. Um, and then maybe let's talk a little bit about Dan Big and the role that he played in, in that with uh, the Chicago Recovery Alliance. Sure. So um, basically, um, Dan Big and, and Chicago Recovery Alliance realized that we didn't just have to change the definition of addiction. We needed to change the definition of recovery and that abstinence had totally owned that term and they shouldn't. So they were like, okay, well, what's a better definition of recovery than abstinence? How can we work on this? And then they sat down in a coffee shop and, and uh, one guy just said any positive change and they couldn't come up with a good argument against that. So that's what it became. And it's really powerful in terms of, you know, okay, so I've gone to a needle exchange today. I'm using a clean needle. I'm making a positive change. That is a step in my recovery. And a lot of abstinence people are always going to hate that because they think, well, that's an active user. They're not really in recovery. I would say to that, that there's a lot of stuff that goes on before you become abstinent and before your life becomes less chaotic. If you become um, non-abstinent, but you're in recovery in terms of having a non-chaotic life, um, the, the process often starts long before you um, actually are capable of um, stabilizing or abstinence or whatever is going to actually make your life better. So that's where any positive change comes in. And that's where you can say, look, you know, I get it. You want to say I'm in long-term recovery. And for me, that's like three years of complete abstinence or whatever it is. Um, that's fine, but it should also be totally okay to say I'm in long-term recovery. And for me, that's using heroin once a week or, um, whatever, again, it happens to be. And so I think it was really important for harm reduction to kind of reclaim that word and to get people to see that active users can make real changes that make a real difference. And that's really one of the lessons of needle exchange because everybody before needle exchange was done, they're like, oh, people with addiction aren't going to care. They're just going to like want to shoot up instantly. They won't use clean needles. Like men don't like condoms. Why would people use clean needles? And of course the answer with clean needles is it makes the high better, but that is a side effect. <laughs> so um, the, the point there is just that people will change their behavior in healthier ways if you give them acceptable means to do so. And when they start doing that, they will become empowered and they will start to see, well, I was able to change that. Maybe I can change something else too. And well, these people think I'm worthy of living even if I am still using. Maybe, you know, maybe I don't have to do this all the time. Maybe there's some other things I want to do with my life. And so that sort of side effect of uh, respect and uh, compassion and meeting people where they are leading people to value themselves more was just is really the enormous amazing thing about harm reduction and, and one of the things that I always actually see is one of the most spiritual things you can imagine because you are basically being kind and that kindness is transforming someone's life yeah and usually being kind to somebody that doesn't receive that from anywhere else um and you know when I started doing harm reduction and I only did it I did street outreach for a year like I remember that being the first time that I, you know, gave some clean syringes to somebody, and then I saw them later on the street corner with a sign, and that was the first time I recognized somebody on the street corner, and like, I was, I saw him every week, and it was like, one of the only times that this person received any kindness anywhere in society, and I'm like, I'm not even doing anything that big of a deal. I'm just giving you some clean syringes. It, I, I, I do believe it is a spiritual practice, harm reduction. Yeah, I think so many programs put, you know, attach strings or use coercion or have all these ultimatums. And 
And like I've just seen in so many ways how uh, approaching people, especially who use drugs, but just people in general, if you're approaching them without judgments and assumptions about who they are and what their value is, like you just get so much more out of human relationships that way. Just like I think harm reduction, um, like you're saying as the spiritual practice, it's like, I, I don't, I'm not like a spiritual guy. Like I don't really think about things that in that way, but like it, it really is so powerful. And at all the harm reduction conferences I've been to and watching this movement of harm reductionists kind of convene and watch them organize and watch them work. Like it really is just some of the most like powerful scenes and really truly kind people like I've ever encountered. And yes, like we're also like, there's prickly people, there's, you know, all this argumentativeness, there's a lot of kind of biting criticism, but like, do you spend time criticizing something you don't care about? You know, it's like, all that comes from a really, truly genuine place of like wanting uh, the world to be a, a better place and, and wanting to, to help people. So of course you're gonna like come in hot and like have strong feelings and opinions, but it is just really such a, a beautiful scene. And I'm, yeah, I was just blown away how, like I've never seen this all laid out in a book in one place. So it was really just a treat to, um, to read this and, and also a treat for me to, actually know that like I've met some of these people like I, I knew Dan Big like I I mean he was just an amazing person and even in the later chapters like Denise Cullen like all those all those activist moms who turned into like some of the most fierce advocates of harm reduction I've ever seen like these are like middle-aged white suburban women for the most part who are just like yeah like going off on Facebook threads and like knocking out all this misinformation and and it's just yeah all these people are just truly remarkable so i i totally understand why you'd want to you know pursue this the way you did because it is really such a special scene and um yeah just like it's it's amazing to to have this book get out in the world so thank you for doing it Ah, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean I'd like to just piggyback on that a little bit and ask you your thoughts on the um sort of intersectionality of, of different sort of like so sex worker activism overlays with harm reduction activism. Now there's a big racial justice movement, families for sensible drug policy got pretty much canceled based on like uh, things that were not really harm reduction related, but like rhetoric on their on their on their Facebook page. I mean, uh, where does like, you know, harm reduction, is there a pure level of harm reduction that, that, that shouldn't necessarily care whether a person is you know, a member of the Aryan nations before they give them a needle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, shouldn't harm reduction be for all? And, and um, has it gotten more as, as you, as you did your history and your historical, um, you know, research on this, has it gotten more, uh, I guess, div divisive than, than it was in the, in the early years? No, I, you know, the funny thing is, of course, like the left always shoots itself first. Uh, <laughs> and um, Like, you know, it was, it was, Everybody was just as difficult back in the day. Um, maybe there was like different types of canceling or something. But um, I feel like, you know, that whole thing is just, it is tragic. We need to be, we need to meet people where they are and accept that sometimes people are not perfect and that we all are worth redeeming in, in many ways. And so, you know, I mean, on the, on the other hand, I also want to say that like, we shouldn't be accepting racism and we should be not accepting sexism and we should be, you know, trying to strive to do better on, on all of these ways. And I think um, somebody needs to do it. I think somebody might actually be doing a history of sex worker harm reduction because I wasn't able, one of the many things, uh, psychedelic harm reduction, um, uh, you know, harm reduction in Australia, harm reduction in Africa, harm reduction in Asia, none of these things I was able to get into be, or smoking harm reduction because otherwise I would have had a 10,000 page book and nobody would have read it. So, but all of this stuff is important and all of these histories need to be told. And I think, um, you know, to me, one of the most fascinating things was um, harm reduction in the black community because originally there was just such a, um, at least in New York, there was a real, um, 
the black leadership at least was severely opposed to needle exchange. And so black people in harm reduction had a really hard time because it was this conflict, this kind of intersectional thing. And so to see, um, you know, how people came through that and to see how like a book like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow um, could get people to recognize that this isn't drug policy, this is racism. Like these drug laws aren't protecting black people or with addiction, these are harming black people with addiction and, and the black community in general. So how, um, you know, so the sort of realization that that was not about drugs and it was about enforcing racism really helped unify the harm reduction movement because um, as more um, black leadership saw that uh, the, you know, the policy that they had previously supported was actually not doing what it was supposed to do. Um, you know, like people came together in a way that was, that was kind of amazing. And it was just so cool to see um, the movement for black lives embracing harm reduction and recognizing, for example, that um, the way historically the police have gotten away with killing people like George Floyd is by saying, oh, there are judges and they don't matter. Um, and like, oh, he died under the cop's knee because like he just happened to overdose at that moment. You know, it's like, you know, it, but it's really good to see people like recognizing that that's what the drug laws are used for, not to help people. So what you were just talking about, you know, I, I did want to ask you what else needs to be told. You're just one person. There's other places where people should pick up off of. I think you gave a lot of really good suggestions. So I think, you know, undoing drugs is a little U.S. centric. It's not really your fault. It's just where you can find the most information. <laughs> no, right. Exactly. I mean, like the thing is that like I there was no way to tell this story globally at this point because the local stories haven't been told. Um, and so I deliberately made it U.S. centric because I needed to narrow it down. And right. I deliberately, um, you know, like I couldn't avoid Vancouver, I couldn't avoid the Netherlands, and I couldn't avoid Liverpool because those were really essential to the story. I feel, I really apologize to the Australians who did some really cool um, user activism early on, but it was just like, um, if I could have gotten money to go to Australia, I might've been able to do that, but I couldn't. Um, yeah. And right, I mean, it was just like, I interviewed 200 people. Um, I don't know how many books and articles and random pieces of activist paper I read. Um, the organizational challenge of this was just crazy. Yeah, I do not envy you. Um, so that people can follow up without having to start from scratch like I did. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of did shock me is just that, you know, in academia, it's really hard to do a first history of anything anymore. Like there's just, you know, it, <laughs> we're in the 21st century, like lots of stuff has been done. I have done two, my history of the um, uh, troubled teen industry and this one, two original histories that academics should have done, but I had to do. Um, so um, I think that is odd, um, but I hope that this area doesn't continue to be like underrepresented in that way. Um, and I hope also that like all of the, you know, more narrow versions that are even more suited to academia actually um, can be um, done. Um, I know there's somebody who's potentially working on history of black harm reduction, which I really look forward to. Um, I think there are, uh, there's somebody working on um, uh, Hispanic harm reduction. There are so many, but there, yeah, there's so many different intersectional areas there. Um, and there's also, you know, People are using harm reduction in the environment now. People are trying to use harm reduction for COVID. Um, it is uh, being used for you know, diet and exercise and all kinds of anorexia, all kinds of different places where it's really useful to have an idea of something that isn't absolutist, that can just say, okay, we know people don't change instantly. We know um, that people are going to engage in risky activity. How do we mitigate the risk instead of just saying no? I wonder if that challenge uh, has anything to do with the, the sort of strategic way you, you laid out the book. By it's very person centric. You know, you you kind of follow specific people in the chapters. Um, was that a was that an organizational strategy that sort of 
you found worked better than trying to do like a historical narrative, like in timeline? Yeah, I mean, the problem was that everything happened at once and it happened in different places. So that was really annoying. Uh, <laughs> and that made the, that meant that chronology alone couldn't work. I originally sort of tried to do like, okay, I'm going to go to this city, I'm going to go to that city, and it's going to be sort of city focused. Um, and it kind of still has some of that. Uh, but um, I think what everybody tells me and that I believe to be true is that individual stories are the most powerful. And even though this means that there's 20 people I was leaving out for every one I was able to like put in, um, in order to get the reader to understand the ideas and to really connect with them, I needed to give them more space to connect with fewer people. And earlier drafts, like uh, a friend of mine who um, helps me edit was just like, too many names, you've got to get rid of these people, you got to put them in the footnotes. I'm like, but no, they're going to be upset about being a footnote. Ah, so, but anyway, that had to happen. And, and um, you know, like I feel, um, I obviously feel like I wish I could have included more people, but I, I just hope that this is a good introduction. And I put right at the beginning, like, this is an introduction. This is the first one. Like, this is not the only, it is not complete. It is just like, here's an intro. Please follow it up because there, is, there are so many amazing, amazing untold stories in this area. Yeah. And there's lots of regional stuff that, you know, there's the stuff in the South, like somebody should just do like mm. the South in harm reduction because that's also really cool. Right. Yeah. The only reason I bring up, you know, uh, parts of stories that something to be told isn't as a criticism, but just so that, you know, someone listening to this, you know, you pick up where Maya pick, took, uh, you pick up where Maya left off. You know, I think there's so much more to be told and that's interesting. Um, and the last chapter of the book was really great because it's very concise and it lays out like a future for drug policy that I think uh, is I hopefully where we're heading. <laughs> I agree with you that that's where we should be going. Uh, maybe you could kind of unpack subtitle of the book is the future of addiction. What do you think that is? Yeah, I was thinking that while you were talking just about in the last election and in all these recent elections, just how popular drug policy reform is like and how people are so ahead of the politicians who represent them, like organ decriminalization and psilocybin uh, treatment centers are like unfolding as we speak. And even in red states, uh, cannabis legalization and medical cannabis is, is, is happening. And in so many cities, psychedelics are being decriminalized. Like it's, there is absolutely movement in the right direction, I think, at like a, a macro level. And then even just recently, Rhode Island of all places, might be the first one to implement a supervised consumption site legally sanctioned. And so like, you know, on the whole, I think there's a lot of hope and, and a lot of progress in the right direction. And then if you look close, there are these patches of, of pretty hardcore resistance and, and Atlantic City, like they're fighting to keep their syringe program up and running. And Scott County, Indiana, which is, which like had a devastating HIV outbreak that was contained and solved by a syringe exchange, the local council members in this area are shutting it down now. It's like, you know, so, so hard to um, kind of keep the, the focus on that macro level, on how successful harm reduction has been since the 80s. And I think, yeah, your book does a really do, does really do a good job of like there's so much tragedy and, and kind of grim uh, despair in this story but there really truly is such a like a, a, a marvelous success story here well that like, I mean that was one of the things that really struck me as I was writing it because um you know you talk to the activists who are in the daily work and they don't see any progress at all and I'm like okay look at Scott County the federal government is trying to convince them to do needle exchange Back in the day, the federal government was trying to quash them. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, not that the, this should be ignored or dismissed um, that there is resistance, but the fact that it is now a very accepted public health um, option um, is enormous. 
and the data that we have is overwhelming. Um, so yeah, but it's still, you know, and I mean, I think one of the things that we really have to look out for, um, this fentanyl thing is killing so many people and it is so much harder to deal with than, than just straight up heroin because it kills so much more quickly. Um, and it's traumatizing people who are doing the work. And in some instances, re-traumatizing them because they have been here as long as I have. And so these are the whole AIDS thing. Um, so it's, you know, that's important. And we need to like help people um, who are doing this, like not burn out and take care of themselves and, and all of that kind of thing. I'm hoping that the big influx of money that's going to come from the uh, opioid settlements, which are costing an enormous amount in terms of suffering among pain patients, um, I'm hoping that that money will help harm reduction um, grow and take care of itself rather than become a giant mess because people are going to go chasing the money. The Biden administration has sort of put put lip service to this idea of, of integrating, integrating harm reduction into its drug policy nationally. I mean, how, how, how likely do you think it is that we'll see a robust harm reduction of the kind that's really needed um, or uh, are we are we gonna just sort of get sort of harm reduction light and, and make everybody feel kind of like they're doing something right? Yeah, I mean, that remains to be seen. I certainly think that um, the organizations on the ground know what to do. They're not always able to do it, um, but I think that, you know, their hearts are in the right place and they do know what to do if given the resources to be able to do it. Um, you know, Biden is an old time drug warrior and I am still concerned about that, but so far his acting drugs are has been quite good. Um, and, you know, I feel like over time he can probably go in the right direction just as he has in, in some areas where it was completely unexpected that he did either. Um, you know, I do have an optimistic nature, so, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but um, the, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, it's an open question at this point. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of it will depend on who is carrying out the policy, like if they genuinely get it or not. Um, so we kind of have to look at who's going to get those jobs and who is within the government, um, you know, giving out the grants and, and this sort of thing, um, you know, I am pleased that, um, you know, Nora Volkov supports decriminalization. I am pleased that two thirds of the American population supports decriminalization of all substances. And I think that moving towards that is going to be kind of the next really big battle. My, my one theory with Biden is that somebody in harm reduction needs to do incredible detailing with Hunter Biden, his son. Someone, if Hunter, if you're listening, just just link up with harm reductionists, get with the program and start talking to your dad. Like that's what needs to happen. <laughs> no, I agree. And what's interesting is like if you read if you read his book, like he does not focus on 12 step. I don't think he even mentioned maybe he mentions it, but like his recovery, he credits to his partner. Um and that is a true story that is rarely told. I am hoping to write about this for um, Scientific American soon. Um, but the it's amazing to see that, um, you know, that he was able to come out with a book saying that, like, yeah, it was love that actually got me in recovery um, and not get slammed all over the place and actually get blurbs from a lot of 12 steppers. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I kind of think that there, um, there is a real chance there. And I do think that, yeah, that might be the best way to make it happen. You know, one more question I wanted to ask, uh, you know, earlier this year, we had, uh, Dr. Carl Hart on the program and he just came out with his book, Drug Use for Grownups. And he kind of pushed back against the term harm reduction, saying it's not really a great public relations term since it connects drugs with harm rather than joy and pleasure. Um, and I kind of get where he's coming from. What are your thoughts on this? I really disagree with him on that. Um, I think that, you know, let's put him in front of a parent who's going to say, what about the children to, well, we should associate drugs with pleasure. Like that is so not a winning political argument. 
Um, the reason that harm reduction has had the success that it has is that it says, let's not focus on pleasure. Let's focus on, we don't want the government focusing on pleasure. We don't want the government regulating our pleasure. We want the government to only put its fingers in when we are talking about harm. And to me, that seems much more sensible because our current policy has been focused on let's stop people from getting high. And harm reduction says, we don't care if you're high. We care if you're hurting yourself or someone else. And so as someone who has watched this movement evolve, I understand why people want to focus more on pleasure. And I get that most people who use drugs are not addicted, but we don't care about those people in terms of policy. The people we care about in terms of policy are the ones who are getting hurt. Now, some people who are not addicted get hurt also, but my point is just that harm is a place that policy should be intervening in. Pleasure is not. Okay, but he, he sort of says, that, you know, maybe we should call harm reduction common sense or something. Like, we don't call brushing our teeth harm reduction. Right, but you're not going to, like, if you just call it common sense, how are you going to explain it to people? Like, let's have common sense drug policy. Okay, there's an organization that has that name, but what does it mean? You know, harm reduction tells you explicitly what it's doing. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the fact that he can dismiss an entire movement that has this name, um, you know, I don't like, I just don't agree with him on that. I agree with him on many things and I worked with him on his earlier book. Um, but I think that, um, you know, early in the drug policy movement in the 80s, there was a whole push to try to like, it's your human right to use drugs. How did that get over? That did not go over very well at all because it's like, well, it's my human right not to have my kid killed. You know, and they believed that prohibition was protecting their kids. Harm reduction, on the other hand, says, we want to fight harm. We don't want to fight a substance, you know? And so, I think that um, while within the within the drug policy reform community, focusing more on pleasure and getting people to sort of look at that as a research area is like, fine, it's important, it should be done. But if you want to convince politicians and parents, I really don't think pleasure is the way to go. Yeah, Americans are, are pretty prudish. We don't like to talk about our pleasures out in the public realm, you know? That's definitely, I mean, our, 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 our culture and the politics are just so weird in this area because, yeah, you have the libertarian, the civil liberty stuff, and then you know, it, it's messy. It's really messy. Yeah, but I, I just like, you know, I've had these arguments. I've talked to these people over time and like it really, you really don't win an argument by saying my pleasure is more important than, you know, harm to other people. And so, you know, I know that that is a caricature of the argument. But that's the caricature that comes across. And so, you know, so when um, when we're talking about pleasure, um, I think we have to do it very carefully because of the American puritanical context. Um, and because, frankly, I don't think government should be regulating pleasure. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> here, right, here. Right. Maya, thanks for coming on. Um, it's been enlightening. It's yeah. Good to talk to you again. Uh, yeah. No, thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, listeners, pick up Undoing Drugs. Uh, where can you get the book? Uh, so um, bookshop.org is always a good, um, a good, it links up all the indies. So that's always a good place to buy from. Um, it is available on Amazon. It is available on Barnes and Noble. Um, and so choose um, where you would like to get it from and um, please get it. People can follow you on social media where? Okay, so yes, um, my most popular or the social media thing that I use the most is Twitter. So I'm at Maya as Z. Um, and my website is mayasz.com, which is M A I A S like Sam, Z like zebra.com. Um, and that will have my contact information and information about the book and the other books and, and the other stuff that I write. But if you want to sort of keep up with the stuff that I'm working on, uh, Twitter is is the place where I can be found for better or worse. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Amaz amazing book. Thank you so much, Maya, for, for your time 
and for putting together this this text. I think, um, yeah, it's super important. Please, please pick it up and read it. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. I guess we have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.